It's episode 71 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Bean. Today on the program is my old, old friend, Brian Mason. He's the chief business officer of photography company Visco, and previously, my co-founder at Typekit. We're going to talk about the hard work of operationalizing creative talent, and very likely reminisce about the past. Oh my God, how did it take me 71 episodes to finally have you on this show? I'm so embarrassed. Don't rush. Don't rush. <laughs> take your time. Well, you know, I, uh, I didn't want to... I didn't want to just like burden my friends with all the first episodes. And so I thought like, no, 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 I'll just, I'll, I'll go out and meet people, uh, and do, you know, proper interviews. And then when we're good and comfortable, have, have the yeah. old timers on. Absolutely. I, don't, I didn't want to do this before you worked out the kink. So this is great. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Well, um, <laughs> thanks for taking uh, time out of your busy schedule, Mr. Chief business officer. Uh, That's right. <laughs> how did, how did you get such a fancy job? What did, um, it was interesting after, after, uh, you and I both left Adobe, I took a little time off and I thought, uh, what is the next most interesting creative problem to solve? Uh, I, I took a page from your playbook and tried to have a hundred lunches, uh, or coffee or drinks with as many interesting people as I could just to find out what, what they found interesting. Um, and I was introduced to Visco, to the Visco founders by one of their investors, that said this is a, a really creative uh, team with a lot of uh, big ambition and some great technology and what they need to figure out is revenue. <laughs> uh, uh. Uh, and so I came in to, to, to help them do that. It's been remarkable. I want to ask you all about that. Uh, but you mentioned that 100 lunches thing. That was really funny. That was, uh, I think, uh, and just to sort of bring everybody up to speed, uh, this period while you're at Visco and I'm at True Ventures is kind of the first time in almost 20 years we haven't worked together day, but day to day. Yeah. 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 So, Strange. so we have a lot. We, we could cover some of that stuff that, that we have done together. Um, but, uh, we also worked together at Adaptive Path. And I think when I left Adaptive Path and started to like wanted to figure out what to do next, um, uh, I, I did this plan of like, I'm going to have lunch with a, a hundred people. And mm -hmm. I, and I made a list of everybody. I like went through my, my emails, like who do, I, who, you know, who are all these people? What are they doing? Uh, and, and to be fair, like, that's what this podcast is now is, um, is that same motivation of like, what are all these people doing now? They've got to be up to something interesting. So, um, so there's a, there's a bit of legacy around that. That's pretty funny that you mentioned that. So you were doing that too. Uh, and you met some investors and they said, go to Visco. Yeah. Go talk to those guys. And, and what's interesting is I think that. I also followed uh, something that, that you did, which is really considering what I wanted to do next. I couldn't do while I was doing the old thing. Like I'm all in on, on sort of whatever I'm working on and to really imagine a future that's different than what I'm doing right now. I, I also learned I had to unplug and take some real time off and, and think creatively about what the future holds. And I, I don't think I could have done that while at Adobe or were a tech kit or wherever. I find it difficult to look into the future also without uh, this sort of gaping anxiety of, oh, my God, I've got to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, before Visco, I gave myself uh, a deadline. I said I put aside a, a, a pile of cash, a little money to, to just take the time off and said, I am not going to worry about what's next until September 1st. I'm going to read and talk to people. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do, you know, things that make me sort of mentally healthy. And I will give myself until September 1st to just not fret. Mm. And the morning of September 2nd, I panicked and of course <laughs> thought, I'm never going to work again. And everything's terrible. And, you know, found a great gig. So 
just taking that time and giving myself permission and even just setting aside the, the savings to spend on myself that way, I was, uh, went really well. That's good. That's good. It is really, I think, difficult to try to do a job and think about the next job. Um, mm-hmm. especially if that is very undefined, like f- for me and, and you in the past too, because we were kind of doing it together, which is like, we have to finish this job and then invent something new because neither one mm-hmm. of us wanted to go get jobs at that point. Right. So mm-hmm. that's right. Um, I think it really does take that kind of that empty space. And frankly, I mean, I'm, I joke about it, but the anxiety of it as well. Uh, they're like, Oh, we really do have to figure something out now. Right. Right. That, that a very special kind of panic. Yeah. 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 Uh, so a little background here on, on Visco, uh, you know, I am, I have been on this podcast very kind of gratuitously and annoyingly, uh, off social media and, and mention it to everybody I possibly can. But, um, I really haven't kept up on what's happening over at Visco. My frame of reference is a long time ago when they were making, uh, presets for Lightroom that kind of replicated different kinds of vintage film and they were amazing. Yeah. And now I look and it's like, there's a, there's a, an app, a mobile app that's number eight in the app store and has a million mm-hmm. reviews, literally a million reviews on the Google play store. Uh, that's <laughs> crazy. What, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a whole thing now. Um, so when, when, when I got here, which was three years ago, uh, the, you know, great team with a really great product and brand, uh, and they'd spent a lot of time investing in the community. And uh, the mission has been the same for the the many years the company has been around, help everybody fall in love with their own creativity. Uh, and the company was founded by a professional photographer and an art director. And they had um, a philosophy on making sure that they were creating tools and an environment in which people um, can be themselves, can tell their own stories, can be uh, have a safe place to be expressive. Uh, and when when the company was founded, it was, as you described, sort of for professionals, by professionals, but with that notion that I'm going to put my best work out there and the the normal trappings of likes and, and uh, follower count have never been on the platform because that creates uh, pressure to create that's kind of unhealthy. Um, and what's been interesting over the last few several months, a couple of three years, is that the the values associated with that from the beginning have become very attractive to this younger generation that wants to be creative and expressive and do it uh, around a community that propels them, not judges them. Hmm. Um, and so it's it's really, really taken off. I'm, not, I'm sure you don't really want to mention or compare yourself to Instagram because everybody in the press seems to do that. But um, <laughs> what a s- sort of stark, you know, this... Uh, contrast to what I have seen on Instagram, which is all about the the presentation of a better self than exists, right? Like, you know, yeah. my, the humble brag and my glamorous life and, and all those sorts of things, as opposed to the quality of the photography. And that obviously exists all over Instagram, but, but um, creating a place just for that, like you said, a safe place. I like that, mm-hmm. that phrase for, I can be creative without being judged. Yeah, well, what we what we hear from our users all the time because all almost all of our users also have an Instagram, and so we ask them like, how do you choose what to put where? And what they tell us is Instagram is how I want the world to see me. What I put on Visco is how I see the world. Ah. I kind of explore the, my world, and that's what I put there. 
That's which great. I love. Yeah, no, I, I like that. That's really, really good. That's cool. The thing that's remarkable is you're also charging people to do that. <laughs> it, it's such a simple business model. Let's make something good. And if it's good enough, people will give us money for it. <laughs> it's, uh, um, but yeah, I think that, that and that's been the case since they launched, uh, since, since before, well before I got here, they'd always, uh, the founders have always uh, you know, put out the presets that you mentioned and charge people for it. So it's always in the DNA. Uh, but we've, what we figured out with this membership model is a way to really scale that. And, and this notion that, uh, the kids today don't want to pay for things is not proven out in, in our, in our data, like 78% of our members are 24 or younger. And so this idea that they don't want to pay for things, uh, doesn't seem to be true. Huh, yeah, that's funny. It's echoes of our previous job when we were both at Adobe after the acquisition of Typekit, where the prevailing wisdom at Adobe was web developers don't pay for anything. Right. And that was sort of hard earned experience that Adobe had with Flash, right? Like, no, mm-hmm, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we're like, nah, pretty sure they will. Uh, it's just, it looks very, very different. It's a service and it helps keep your website up and it's not necessarily a tool to draw things. And, uh, mm-hmm. And on and on. So um, that's one interesting sort of uh, bucking conventional wisdom to figure out a way to create something of value for an audience that people have written off. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, or or they feel they 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 understand them well. They understand their their the problems they're trying to solve or the sort of need they're trying to satisfy. In that case, I think Adobe just or the people at Adobe who espoused that web web folks don't pay for things, web designers, developers don't pay for things, I think just fundamentally misunderstood the problem we were trying to solve for them. Yeah, well, that's one of the difficulties of working for a large uh, organization is that sometimes the outside world becomes a little more opaque. Uh, That was Mm -hmm. certainly my experience in the years that we were there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And even even here, we we have to work. um, I, I am not 24 or younger. We have to do a bunch of work to make sure we are we stay connected to and understand the the problems of the aspirations of our community. Uh, it's different than when you know you and I were working with everyday web designers, developers, solving problems for the people that we sat with. Um, it's very different when you when you don't sit with them every day and listen to the the issues they're having. It, it's uh, it's a lot more work to do that research, but really fun work. Turns out user experience can be applied to business models as well as product development. <laughs> Turns out. <laughs> uh, so I, I have questions about your job title, but before we do that, I want to go back a little bit. Like, let's trace it back. So uh, you and I were both at Adobe during the launch of the Creative Cloud, and we did a bunch mm-hmm. of the sort of legwork to make that sort of come to be. Uh, and we were there as a result of our founding of Typekit together. Yep. But that was a very deliberate thing. You and I, again, with the, uh, like, what are we going to do? I don't know. Uh, let's just start a company and figure it out. Uh, yep. We started that company almost, I think, yeah, it was probably nine months before Typekit even manifested itself. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, small batch, we called it. Uh, bo- both from uh, the idea of, like, we're going to try something uh, experimental on a very small scale to see what could be big. And at the time, at least, our, our shared love of whiskey. That's right. And the naming convention was was obvious, and I was surprised that the URL was available. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We still have it. We do. I just renewed it. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> uh, the um, uh, before that, uh, 
you were the very first employee that we hired when we founded the partnership of Adaptive Path. Yeah. And I think that's one of the clearest examples of, hey, here's a room full of creative people that really have a bunch of great ideas for how to shape the practice of user experience and design and all of that, and have really no idea how to form a functioning company. It's funny. I've always found the most interesting jobs or challenges uh, to be an equal mix of, I know exactly what to do here, and I have no idea what I'm doing here. Right. <laughs> so, so Adaptive Path was... Um, the, the part that I, I believed I knew what to do came from prior career where I had wor- where I'd worked as a stage manager, as a company manager in New York, working in a really, you know, creative environments like Lincoln Center and Playwrights Horizons and some really great companies, highly, highly creative, well, you know, accomplished organizations that had a lot of structure, right? And, um, the, the creative process had, literally unionized structure around how to uh, develop a, a product to show. And so talking with you and your co-founders, you had a lot of philosophy on the work that you wanted to do, but the rest of the structure, the company part of the company, the making money and not getting sued part didn't seem to interest uh, everybody, at least not on a, I want to invest. I want to invest my time every day. That's the part that I found the most the most interesting and knew that I could put some structure around that and, and kind of support, create a foundation on which you could do what you found to be the most interesting work, the client creative, you know, getting into organizations and helping them make new, interesting things. And you, you never let us get sued. We never got sued. I tried so hard. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't that it wasn't that nobody had grounds, uh, you know, it's a a really creative company, uh, doing, interesting things, uh, you know, has its challenges, but no, we never, we never got sued. We never got close. We'll have more questions about that, but I want to take a little break right now. And, uh, oh, this is so perfect. All right, Brian, do you remember when we were doing, I think our second round of financing for Typekit, Mm -hmm. and we had a slide in our fundraising desk that was literally a screenshot of our pingdom dashboard. Sure. And I I think we had a title that said like something like robust global font distribution. Um, so Pingdom is a sponsor this week, uh, of the, of the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're, they're fantastic. Um, we used them all throughout Typekit. It's a, it's a, it's a service that just measures web performance at its simplest. Uh, I think we even continued to use them when we were at Adobe too. You may, you may still be using them right now at, uh, at Visco as well. Cause kind of everybody does. Pingdom, uh, I got, oh, they sent me a list of some of the companies. Netflix uses them, Amazon, Spotify, Twitter, BuzzFeed, Slack, uh, just a few of the companies uh, that really trust Pingdom to take care of their website monitoring. Um, these, uh, these websites, as you know, get incredibly complicated, um, mm-hmm. but you can, you, can, uh, so you can monitor all sorts of stuff. Uh, you give them a URL, it will load that URL, and if it can't or if it's slow in any way, it sends out alerts to anybody you specify. Uh, but you can also like APIs, user registration, how they log in, how they check out. Right, like, oh my God, we can't actually take money from people right now, which has got to be the most important thing you want to know. Uh, the moment it happens, uh, Pingdom can help you monitor all of that and and care for your users having a very very smooth uh, user experience across your entire site. Uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, re- I remember I, I remember specifically signing up uh, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the New Yorker, like all very quickly a few months after launch. And being very excited that we had these, you know, these great publications, these great reference clients, and then thinking, 
how do we know it's working? Right. How do we know? How do we know that they're uh, going to be happy customers? And and that monitoring uh, let us know they, uh, week after week that uh, we were honoring our commitment to our clients. And we would do that on sales calls uh, when it was time for them to renew and bring the charts and say, "Look, here's our charts from Pingdom. Uh, we've had." 99.9999% uptime the entire time you've been with us and stuff like that. So yeah, all, like I said, all you got to do is put in a URL and they'll take care of the rest. That is it. So if you go to pingdom.com slash relay FM, you get a 14 day free trial. You don't even have to put in a credit card. So there's, there's no reason like go play with it. Go see what it's like. Uh, when you do sign up, use the code presentable and you'll get 30% off your first invoice, no matter how much you sign up for, which is amazing. So pingdom.com slash RelayFM, then use presentable at checkout. Uh, thanks to Pingdom for their support of the show and for all of Relay FM. All right, where were we? We were, yeah, we had started Adaptive Path, a bunch of creative people. You were uh, our first hire to really just run the business. Uh, and you were saying you had experience doing that. Now, now you mentioned uh, doing things for the Lincoln Center and, and various stage productions and things like that. But you also have a little background managing the highly creative and f- very stressful world of politics. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about that. When That was in the 90s that you did that? Um, yeah, you never get entirely out. It still comes up now and again. But it started in the, in the yeah, mid-90s. Uh, I'd always sort of volunteered for campaigns and been politically active uh, my goal at the time was to be a, a producer, a, a theater producer in New York. My mentor, who's still the executive director of Playwrights Horizons, said, "If you want to, if you want to be a producer, you have to learn how to raise money. It's fully half the job. Huh. The best way to learn how to raise money in America is to go to work on a on a campaign." So I jumped onto a New York State Attorney General race. Really loved our candidate, amazing individual. Uh, got his ass kicked uh, in the primary. And so his staff of five people were all unemployed, but he got me a job um, after that doing what's called advance work uh, for the White House. So traveling with President Clinton, uh, mostly with the first lady at the time, Hillary Rodham Clinton, Mm. uh, producing their events. So five days, three days, sometimes in advance of the president, the first lady, you go ahead and you figure out the light, sound, staging, uh, work with Secret Service on security, and you make an event. You do it quickly. Uh, and it's, it's one of the places that I learned, uh, the most creative environments have a tr- ton of constraint, uh, a ton of pressure and the, the very best people, uh, thrive on that sort of, as we mentioned before, uh, uh healthy panic. Huh. I love that healthy panic. Oh my God. I can't even imagine the constraint that must be on a political event like that with the president of the United States or the first lady of the United States. There are a lot of rules, and especially whether it's an official trip where they're, you know, going to a school or a military base versus a political event, a rally or a, a you know, a roundtable, um, have really different rules around who's allowed to do what. There are an outrageous amount of rules on what money can and can't be spent, and the answer is just like, don't spend any money. Yeah. Don't spend any government money. Don't spend any campaign money, but uh, make it amazing. <laughs> yeah, which is, I think, something we hear all the time. I want something beautiful and amazing and flashy, and I want it to get a bunch of news. But don't spend any money, and you have five days. Right, right. You want it, you want it fast, good, or cheap. Right, exactly. Pick a couple. So I really like that, both in the theater, right? With with the the curtain is going to rise no matter mm-hmm. what. Um, the politician is going to go. On, although uh, to be fair, with Bill Clinton, it could could have been six or seven hours late. 
often, almost always. But that's the thing you have. But that's the thing you have to plan for. Like right. we would we would plan an event and say, all right, what what are we going to do to fill for the thirty minutes to three hours that yeah. he he may be late. But the 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 reality is there is a date, there is a time. This is going to happen. Be your absolutely be your most creative. But this is going to happen, right? Yeah. Um, which is something I think that informed a lot of the work that you and I did together with these teams, like picking arbitrary dates for things like user research or even demos <laughs> to investors or whatever, uh, yeah. that tried to be- to find that balance between being respectful to our team, right? We're not like, I don't want everybody there all weekend long or trying to pull 16 hour days to make it happen. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, a sense of urgency that we're not just going to sit around and brainstorm for the next three weeks. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those those elements of artificial constraint are super important just to get everybody um, on the same page. Everybody should know that they are artificial, but should also just own them and run at it. And when you can do that, I think you get into a really good rhythm. Like we're, you and I are recording this on September 30th. Tomorrow is the first day of the next quarter, right? There's nothing about quarters that really matters, <laughs> except we all agree it's a it's a milestone. And so, you know, sales teams, dev teams, marketing teams drive towards milestones. And if you don't have them, then, yeah, you have that sort of ambiguous area of things that are interesting and possibly valuable. But without without some real, again, constraint, um, they're just interesting ideas. Do you think that when it comes to creative groups of people, you know, I don't even like that term creative because, frankly, uh, you and I had one of the most creative lawyers that I could possibly imagine in the work yeah. that we were doing together. Uh, and you know, he's only ever opened Excel and word on his laptop, but, um, <laughs> but he was remarkably creative, but, but there is this sort of stereotype of creative people, like the people who are making, you know, uh, things like music or user interfaces or, you know, things like that. Do you think, though, that they, as a group of people, require any special sort of management that anybody else wouldn't? Because you've managed sales teams now and you know mm-hmm. things like that. Is there, is there a difference between the two? Yeah, I think there is. Uh, and I haven't. I think that I've, I've put a lot of thought into this idea that everybody can be creative. But I think lawyers, accountants are, are great examples of people that you don't necessarily think as creative until you have a problem that doesn't have a traditional solution or doesn't have a... Creative accounting is, <laughs> but, but, you know, um, no, I don't my dad, I'm sorry, go ahead. But no, my dad's an accountant. No, but it's true. Creative accounting is important. My, my dad was an accountant. I was raised by a CPA and you think of accounting as this sort of, you know, it's very black and white. You put them in this column or that column. Yeah. You define it as this or that, but there's a lot of subjectivity that goes into it. And I remember my dad, first time I had to file my taxes on my own, I was trying to figure out what was uh, what I could expense, expense, uh, what was expensive and what wasn't. And he would say, ah, put it in there, make them, make them prove it. So like, <laughs> wait a minute. Did you just say about the IRS, make them prove it? They're like, yeah, they're not going to audit you. It's, it's a little gray area. You'll be fine. So I, I, that makes him sound like he was, uh, uh, uh cheating, but he's not, he's, he's like, all of those things require judgment calls and those judgment calls add up to can uh, add up to something really creative, Unless you just sort of do the thing that's always been done before. But the, uh, so the creative teams though, uh, a group of designers or a group of actors that are putting together a uh, production, uh, that does feel a little 
different than say uh, a room full of salespeople? For sure. Yes. I think, I think that they, part of it is just, they're people that identify themselves as creative. They, they want to make something new. They want to make something that wasn't there before. Uh, And I think you can feed that and support that and give that a firm foundation and see amazing work. Or you can, where I see sort of creative teams mismanaged is when their work isn't respected, their work isn't funded, uh, the constraints are are entirely unreasonable as opposed to, you know, um, difficult. Uh, and that's, I think, a, a creative team can tell when they're not respected. Uh, that sort of traditional design comes last, make it pretty, make the logo bigger, let's ship this thing. Uh, that's when a creative team isn't, isn't respected, isn't supported. Hmm. The flip side is there from the beginning, in on on the decision making, in on the scoping, in on the the, the definition of constraints and and milestones. When you have a real partner at every stage, that's when you get the best work out of out of people who self identify as creative. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's another side to that coin though. One of the things that w- that I have seen over on the investing side uh, with my job now is the the time in a company's life when there, there tends to be a bunch of hiring for a new leadership team, or if not new, at least, you know, bringing these people in for the first time. Oh, we need a CFO or a, a chief mm-hmm. business officer or, yep. uh, Oh, we got to bring legal in house now. Oh, we got to do that. And this happens to all these companies, you know, they're, ah, they're 150 people and ah, they're heading to their third round of financing, whatever it's, it's different, different, but it kind of feels around that time. Um, and it is like, you know what? We're going to bring some grownups in and you know, we're going to start, we're going to really manage this. Now what you're doing is really working, but it's, but there is a, a way to professionally manage all of this stuff. And, and I just, and it happens all the time. And the companies that go through that transition very well, anticipate it way ahead of time. Like, you know, we're going to do, we're going to take our first round of funding and our seed stage, and we're going to use that to do a whole bunch of experimentation until we find something that works. And then we're going to just double down and triple down on that. I think there is, you know, time when, when that transition feels like a lot of friction and a lot of tension. And I know you, mm-hmm. you've been through that a couple of times. We went through that in multiple instances in the adaptive path days. I'm sure you've gone through mm-hmm. that at Visco. Uh, but there's a time when like, hey, super creative people, we got to make some money or we all go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, that's where Visco found itself. You know, the, the benefit of raising a bunch of money uh, a few years ago was that they had the luxury of building great product, building a brand, building a community uh, and always making some money, but not really focusing on scalable revenue until they had proven out the, the, again, the technology and the, the brand. And it was, I think the so when I got here in 2016, we experimented with a, a number of business models to see which one our users sort of connected to the, the most, which ones aligned with our values most directly, and which we thought could really scale to take advantage of the opportunity as we see it. Um, and and the for us, the membership model hits those things, right? Like we are in total alignment with our users. We are creating value for them and they for us. Uh, the, those values are expressed through the product, whether it's the tools or the community, or we do a lot in, in mentorship and inspiration and education on how to be creative. And I think when we can find alignment on all those things, both on the creative side and the business side, that's when you really 
unlock the ability to take advantage of the opportunity, which is why we've seen kind of the the remarkable growth in just the last few several months, couple of years. And so is that I want to get back to a little more personal here uh, when I was kind of joking, like, like, hey, what does a chief business officer do? But it was literally to like figure out how to make money with the company. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I got here, it was figure out scalable revenue. We figured out revenue. And now my focus is is almost entirely on sort of business development, working with with uh, Apple, Google, uh, Snap, TikTok on growth. Uh, and and corp dev figuring out how we can inorganically grow the company through acquisitions. Corp dev inorganic. You mean buying other companies? Buying other companies. That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's there's, a lot of jargon. There's the code words. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It does get jargony. You're right. It does, and and that's one of the things uh, I remember you and I being uh, very mindful of when when we were growing the Typekit team and we would do these weekly all hands that were like read out on the business uh, review of the improvements to the products. And then like many Ted talks that the, the team would do, right. That was, her. yeah, yeah it was super, super fun. But like trying to explain to a group of relatively young startup employees, how mm-hmm. uh, options and equity work and what, yeah. like when we say we're going to go raise another round, what, what on earth does that mean? And what is these valuation number, all of that kind of stuff. So I mentioned you have a fair amount of education in this job as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we have uh, uh, our, our CFO, a woman named M. Westerhold, is fantastic at educating. You know, we have 150 folks now and we're bringing on new people every week and making sure that everybody here really is uh, understands the value of equity and what an option is and understands the business, like how uh, how we're growing and what sort of OPEX is versus COGS and and growth rates and churn rates are all things that if everybody uh, is really going to feel like an owner of the business, which they are, if everybody's going to, they have to understand those things and we have to make it sort of important to them. And I think the whole leadership team specifically led by M uh, has done a great job doing, doing that. So you just said 150 people. So yeah. uh, in, in the years that you've been there, like what's the growth been like? When I got here, we we um, were fairly, uh, really, really careful in growth. Until we had scalable revenue, we wanted to really manage our burn, make sure that we, you know, had product market fit on on everything, not just the the actual product, but the brand and the community. Uh, and once we figured out revenue, then we've been very careful to scale revenue with. I'm sorry, scale our headcount and our our staff with income just to make sure we don't get too far over our skis. So as, as our membership has grown, we launched our membership two years ago. Uh, we hit uh, a million paid members in about a year. Uh, and then the end of last year, we hit 2 million paid members. And we'll, we'll double that this year, which gives us the ability to you know, uh, really hire. And so we'll, we're looking at how to do that. It's tough in the Bay Area. There's a lot of competition. Mm. Uh, and so we've just decided to open an office in Chicago. We looked at 19 different cities in North America uh, and and sort of picked Chicago as the the best for us. Uh, and so we're all we're heading out there. We'll, we'll we get an office January one, and we'll start scaling there as well. Oh, so that's interesting. You decided to open us a second office, like a almost like another headquarters, rather than say do mm-hmm. distributed hiring or whatever, like. Have people all over yeah. the country. 
Yep. Well, we we had uh, offices. We had a, a New York office and a couple of different offices in Denver. We had some remote employees uh, for a while. And I think that in 2016, 2017, we brought everybody, virtually everybody to Oakland, which really helped us focus, helped us focus uh-huh. on our on our process, uh, product and business. And I think it took us a couple of years to get that right. So only now do we think that we could uh, export that uh, to another location. But I don't know if we're ready to do that fully distributed. I think a company is either distributed or centralized. And if it is centralized, then maybe, you know, multiple office. But I think mixing centralized, multiple location and distributed is too confusing. Yeah, it's, that's it's, probably true. And and yeah. I'm still uh, probably now you know, being one of those grumpy old guys, uh, uh, with, with a fixed notion of collaborative work. Uh, but I I have always felt like certain functions work better distributed than other ones. Uh, and I know that for deep, deep product work, uh, personally being in the room with three or four people that I trust enormously that have slightly different capabilities, right? Mm -hmm. One very technical person and one very sort of visual person and me mm-hmm. much more on the interaction doing that together uh in two hours i can do two months worth of work it feels like right um yep. and so i we were distributed with typekit and one of the things we did was just like ah this is a huge inflection point a big hard problem let's all just fly to be in the same place so the remote work mm-hmm. did work uh it w- but it was a function of every so often and sometimes really frequently we just all have to get into the same place yeah but even the structure of the day like we had a you know we had a stand-up where people who were there and not there were were structured. We had set times of the year where everybody came together. So I, I do think you can solve a lot of that with yeah. with just uh, routine and structure. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. The uh, as you grow and the discipline you've had is pretty remarkable because I know you guys have raised tons and tons of money. Uh, so you know you could just say like, yeah. we need one hundred designers like right now. You know, uh, companies have done that. Uh, and buckled under that cultural shift that happens when that many people come in at once. So to see that discipline, but also to sort of look for the pitfalls of where are we hiring and how are we doing it, stuff like that, must have been a challenge. Yeah, I think that what we've learned over time is to be really, really crisp about the values of the company. And and it's one thing to say, are they qualified to do the job or not? You know, they have they have the kind of experience that we're we need to do the the functional job. Where we've where we've here, and I think. Uh, you and I have made mistakes in the past is when we just didn't vet to make sure that the, that that person had had an alignment in values, what, what they were trying to do, what are the problems they're trying to solve? Who are they trying to serve? Um, what do they sort of believe in? What's their vocation? Uh, when there's misalignment there, the rest of it kind of doesn't matter. Uh, where there is alignment there, you can adjust what the job is and what their responsibilities are and how they produce to to a large degree to make sure they're a, a good fit. Uh, we think a lot about, is this person going to be a culture ad? You know, culture, culture fit is one thing, but that a culture fit, you get a lot of the same thing. Culture ad, are they going to they going to add to the fabric of our right. organization? I think uh, we've done really, really well with, especially over the last several months. Uh, we've We've put a lot of energy into into that uh in every every interview panel there's somebody who's just interviewing for for values and that that interviewer essentially has might be an overstatement but essentially has veto yeah it, uh if if there's not a a culture uh, ad a values alignment they're not gonna it's just not gonna work 
Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. You know, we've talked a lot about kind of uh, structuring the constraints for creative teams and things like that. One of the things I think you and I have both witnessed in our careers is when creative teams put their power in the wrong place. Like they use their, they use their, um, the methodologies that they have developed around producing creative output and, Mm -hmm. and essentially innovate in the wrong place. And, you know, like the, the example that you and I have, have had in the past was with adaptive path where we tried to be very creative around the structure of the company. When in fact, in now with tons of years of hindsight, we probably should have just been a very, like a doctor's office or a lawyer practice or something made it very, very simple and clean cut. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so you must think about that all the time when, when people are like, you know, how should we, Hey, let's, let's go outside the box with our next round of funding. And you're like, let's absolutely not do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, it gets a lot of, what is the metric we're, we're trying to move? What's the change we're trying to make? If, if we do this, you know, uh, with adaptive path, if we, if we come up with this really clever corporate structure, what's the end result? How is it good? What's the, what's the virtue in the end? And if you can't really crisply define that and you can't measure it, then you're just doing it because it's intellectually or academically interesting, which is what we did a lot of, right? We just, we did things because we liked to challenge norms. We like to, you know, uh, think of ourselves as so clever that we can do things in a totally different way without spending enough time on the why and, and nearly enough time on the what what are the success metrics? How will we know if this was worth it? Yeah, yeah. Um, hard, hard to foresee, too, uh, a lot of times. But um, yeah, like if our if our goal of of tweaking corporate structure was an intent to make the work better, it's still very hard to sort of make a crisp definition for are we succeeding or not? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think we did adaptive path did a lot of things to sort of inform, define, inspire an industry. So I think a lot of the events, a lot of the writing, uh, anytime we were able to talk about the work that we did for clients in the public to sort of move the industry along, those are all easy, easy things to measure and things about which I think we're all still proud. But the all the time on the corporate structure or stuff Merlin Mann would call sort of making your own ketchup. You're oh, like, this is so much work for I don't know what kind of result was not to was not to sort of really serve that creative end that sort of move the industry define a practice. It was pretty navel gazing in in hindsight. Yeah. Yep, but tremendous amount of lessons learned, uh, uh, and ulti- <laughs> ultimately just outrageously satisfying work that we did so yeah for sure yeah, appreciate that um all right well you probably have to go m- make business so uh well that sounded a lot worse than i meant it to <laughs> yeah. well i have a toddler we talk a lot about making business a lot about that uh yeah yeah i'll let you get back to your very busy and fancy job um you are uh at mason on twitter uh right. everybody should go to Visco, and, and I should be clear, since this is a uh, you know audible uh, medium, vsco dot com. It is the uh, it was formerly the, the visual supply company, right? Isn't that where it started? That's right. Yeah, I mean, much like Small Batch, uh, uh, they didn't entirely know what they wanted to do. They yeah. just wanted to work together, so they incorporated as a visual supply company, and we'll figure the rest out later. Yeah, and they certainly have. So congratulations right. on all the success and the millions of users and all of that. That's amazing. <laughs> 
Uh, and it sounds like if, uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're a designer and you're in Chicago, hey, you might, you might want to look at the jobs page over at visco.com. Absolutely. Chicago or the Bay Area, um, we, we are hiring. Uh, we're actually doing some devi- design events uh, both in Chicago and the Bay Area uh, soon. So hit me up. Oh, yeah. Cool. If you have link, send me some URLs. I'll put them in the show notes. That'll be great. Yeah, yeah, we'll do. All right, awesome. Hey, you know what? <laughs> it's really, I'm glad you finally came on the show. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's great. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Veen and this was Presentable. Presentable.